those of you here for the first time, we are again glad you're here. My name is Trub Prater, lead pastor here at the Vine Community Church. We are honored that you would give us your Sunday morning. We have been on quite a journey through the book of Acts. We're kind of continuing down that verse by verse movement. We are into week 34 and what we've kind of looked at this whole experience, this whole journey through the lens of a call that the book of Acts is not just a historical account of the birth of the church or uh, you know, what happened in the first century with the church, but instead it's a call. It's a call of the church, of, of us together. It's our individual call lived out in community. It is the call of the Christ follower, that when we say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, you get my life, the book of Acts becomes our call. And what we've seen in there over the past 34 uh, weeks has really been these movements of, of incredible sort of momentous faith and then movements of deep hurt uh, moments of joy and moments of sadness and all those things that go in between there. We've seen the church at its greatest. We've seen the church at its worst. We've seen culture take advantage of, uh, of the church, fo- our followers of Christ. We've seen great heartache. but We've also seen God do incredible, amazing things. And on some level, it's a microcosm of what our church experience looks like for us, that it's a, a kind of a winding of all of those emotions. It's, it's a building of the things that are both deeply uh, joyful and deeply sorrowful. It's a a building of the questions that we have answered and all the ones that we don't have answered. And in the middle, we've looked at it and we've said, what would it look like if, if, if personally I gave my entire life to Christ, like everything, every ounce of who I am? What would that look like? And what would it look like as a church if we did that together? And last week, we sort of uh, looked at this picture and we examined how culture and the church oftentimes work in such opposite ways or called to work in opposite ways. Because what we've seen in chapter 13 was that the missionary journeys have begun. The mission movement of the church has happened. And Paul and Barnabas are on the very first missionary journey. And they landed on an island called Cyprus. They, they set sail and they landed on this island and they, they moved through there and they preached the gospel. And we saw incredible things happen, including the ruler of the entire region come to know Christ. They left that island, sailed northward, and they landed, and they went 90 miles through the mountains, and they came to the town of Antioch, and they went to the temple, and they preached the gospel there, and they saw incredible things happen. The people were so moved that they invited them to come back again, and the whole city showed up. And last week, we looked at that experience as the whole city gathered and the gospel message they preached, and we looked at how oftentimes our culture, even our church or sort of our religious culture is often in opposition to the gospel, and we explored eight things. Uh, that I thought that we, if we began to truly understand, would revolutionize the way the church thinks about mission and evangelism and life and et cetera. And we talked about things like living in the in-between and the moments that take place between Sunday and Sunday, living with our neighbors, living in, in the desire for restored relationships. And you can go back and, and listen to all that if you want to. But at the end, what we landed on was this, was that the church exists not to gather together as a sanctified place by which we invite the world to come and join us. But the church exists to decentralize itself and seep into the cracks and crevices of culture, of society, and be be the gospel to those that have never met Jesus. And it's so often in opposition to what our church culture wants us to tell, that we are uh, programmatically driven, or that we are me-driven, or maintenance-driven, or look at us, or growth-driven, or whatever those things are. Um, that we kind of hold dearly to is saying that's what a functional church looks like. When we really read Acts, what we see is not the gathering and the centralization of the church for the propaganda, the the upbringing of itself, but instead the decentralizing of it, seeping into the cracks and crevices to be with people. 
Most of us think our goal for evangelism is if I can just invite people to church, treble, tell them about Jesus. Right? If I can just do that, then that's great. And the reality is there's some truth to that. But our goal should be to walk with people that you spend your neighbors and your friends, inviting them into your home, your coworkers, that you are the gospel to them, that you speak truth into their lives. The decentralizing of the church is not popular in our culture. We compare ourselves to every other church in the, in the country, right? What success looks like, who's got rock climbing walls and orchestras on Sundays and all these kind of things. And the reality is, is that when we really read scripture, we see a decentralization, meeting in the lives of people and living in restored relationships or fighting for restored relationships. So we looked at all that last week, right? And it's not a new theme. If you've been coming at all and you've heard my heart, I mean, that is part of our DNA, what we want to be about. The, the, the lack or the, not so much the, the building of ourselves, but the, the, the sending of ourselves because we see that the call to Christ follows to live as a sent community. So they leave town. They, they're in Antioch. The whole city gathers. They share the gospel. Some of them respond great. Some of them don't. And they end up kind of rejecting them. And the, the Jewish people that didn't believe, they found the most powerful men and women in the whole city. And they said, we got to kick these people out of town. And so sure enough, that's what happened. They expelled them from the entire region. And so Paul and Barnabas symbolically shake the dust off their feet. And they travel. They travel 100 miles southeast to the town of Iconium, where we're going to pick up in chapter 14 today. Um, so if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up. Because what we're going to explore today are a few of the lesser talked about truths of the gospel that we see coming out of this text. So if you've got that Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 14. And we're going to be in the first seven verses. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll dive into it together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to gather on a Sunday morning and worship you, the God that unites, the God that draws together, the God that holds us together under the banner of the gospel. Lord, the truth is, is that we are in a constant tension. Tension between your call for us to surrender our lives and our desire to maintain control. And I have a feeling that many of us here this morning are in the middle of that tension. In the middle of that tension of you calling us to die to ourselves, to lay down our lives, and us fighting you for control and safety at every turn. And I pray that what we'd be able to open and see today, Lord, is that you are a God who calls to lay those things down, not because you want to take things from us, but because you want to give us life, real life, abundant life. Pray right now in your own heart. Just ask God to teach you something this morning. Pray that God would move in you. Pray for someone beside you or around you, even if you don't know their name. We do this each week, mainly because we want to be in the habit of praying for other people, that this thing is not about you alone, but pray for the people around you. Pray that God would move in them. Pick somebody out and just pray for them. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified this morning, that as we read your word, God, you would be exalted and lifted up, that you would receive glory, honor, and all praise. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So Barnabas and Paul have left Antioch, and the disciples there are filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And we talked last week about those outcomes of restored relationships. And that's where we kind of left off. We'll pick it up in chapter 14. They've traveled 100 miles southeast, back down over the mountains, 
and they are going to the city of Iconium, which is a, a Greek town um, that is sort of nowadays, if you're familiar with geography at all, uh, maybe you're not, maybe it doesn't make any difference, but it's in the country of Turkey, fourth largest city. It's a, it's a big place then, it's a big place now, um, and so that's kind of where they are. They're in this Greek colony up there, and they're going to the city of Iconium. So let's look at chapter 14 in the first seven verses. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. And there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. Now I'll tell you, when I read this and you read all of chapter 14 in its context, you really want to get past this to start in verse 8 because in verse 8 things get really weird and very different and so it seems like these first seven verses we've seen a dozen times right I mean Paul and Barnabas they go into a town they show up in the temple they preach the gospel some believe some don't the ones that don't get frustrated they try and convince the other ones that they should be frustrated too everybody kind of makes threats or slanders and they run them out of town I mean that is the scenario that we've seen times already, and it's a scenario that we're going to see dozens of more times as we go through the three missionary journeys. And so at first glance, I was like, I mean, how many different ways can I tell this story, right? That you go in there and you preach the gospel and people are going to reject you and all those kind of things. So what I thought about doing was just reading through it and then jumping into verse 8 so that we covered those verses and moving through verse 8 and getting into some of the weirder stuff that's going to come, right? Because what we're going to see next week and the week after is that people believe that the Paul and Barnabas are gods. They actually believe it's Zeus reincarnate. I mean, it's a crazy story. But... What do we do with these, right? I mean, it just seems like a, a set of verses to get us somewhere else. So I started looking at it really closely, and there's a couple reasons I decided not to do that. The first is that when we began this journey 30, whatever, weeks ago, the commitment was I wanted to work through every single verse in the book of Acts. I wanted to touch on it and explore it and look at it, uh, mainly because that's how the, sort of the best way to look at Scripture in all of its context. Whether those, those verses are, are really difficult, we don't get to skip them. Whether they seem to just sort of be uh, leading us somewhere else. Or whether they seem somewhat meaningless as a travel verse to another place. We wanted to explore it because there's depth and truth in all of Scripture. So that's kind of the first reason. But the second reason, and really the, the real reason, is because as I read it, there's a few things in here, lesser talked about truths of the gospel, that I think we have to address because they're staring at us. And if we don't address them, we actually do the gospel message a disservice, all right? And so this morning what I wanted to do was I wanted to look at that, that well-known scenario. Paul and Barnabas show up. They go to the temple. They preach the gospel. Some believe, some don't. The ones that don't stir up trouble, poison the minds, and they plot against them, and they try and kill them, and they flee and run away from the city. But what's really happening in there are some truths about the gospel that we have got to understand in our context of church today. And they're things that we know, but they're lesser talked about. And there's a reason they're not talked about very much. is because they're not really popular to talk about. Okay, So what I want to explore today are those two lesser talked about truths and how we as a church or individuals 
can live in response to this. So the first one, it kind of jumps out to you. It's pretty easy to see. And that's this. The gospel message causes division. Now, it's a really interesting concept, right? Because we see scripture talking all the time about unity. In fact, when we went through Philippians together, we saw this kind of call for unity from Paul all the time. Being like-minded, being one in spirit, being one in unity and purpose. And we talked about how unity... Um, and that context is really under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are called to be unified in our common heartbeat and love for Jesus Christ. But if you really read scripture, you will recognize very quickly that the gospel message divides. It divides so much that we see an entire city split. The people, verse 4, of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. The gospel message at its core is a message of division. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but you've got to understand that this isn't the only place that we see that. When the gospel is proclaimed and lived accurately, when it is unwaveringly spoken, it causes division. There's a lot of places we see this in Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself says it, and I marked a few of them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus himself says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Every Sunday morning when we pray, I usually recite Hebrews 4.12. The author of Hebrews is talking about the Word of God, and he says this. He says, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The reality is, is that the gospel divides. It pulls apart. It separates, Right? Now, we're in a culture where we don't like that kind of language because we live in a church culture that fights for unity at all costs. Anything that promotes this idea of division has got to be reconciled quickly and swept under the rug because we are petrified of living in it. And so we fight for unity at all costs. And we think that the Bible, when it talks about unity, is talking about unity for the sake of getting along, for the sake of tolerance. The Bible never talks about unity for the sake of tolerance. The Bible's concept of unity is always about under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, like-minded in one heart, one gospel, one baptism. We explore the idea of unity because we want everyone to get along. We want to hold hands, and we want to just accept whatever it is that you believe, right? doesn't matter what it is. You are welcome here. And there's a truth to that. But when we begin to water down the core of the gospel message... We miss the, the gospel's call, the Bible's call to unity. The Bible, scripture, the gospel message at its core is actually a message of division. It's, you know why it is? It's because it's a message of death. This is why this stuff is lesser talked about, right? The gospel at its core is a message of death. Because at the very core of the gospel is the call to come and die. Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a 19th century theologian and sort of a, a Nazi dissident, he was a fighter against oppression of Hitler. Uh, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship that, that, we, you know, that sort of has sh- helped shape my life. But one of the things that he says in there, he says that when a God calls a man, calls a person, he calls them, he bids them to come and die. 
And it may be the kind of death like the disciples had when they were called out of their homes and households, or maybe the kind of death that Luther had when he had to leave the monastery or the church life and go be with people. But either way, the call is exactly the same. It's a call to come and die to yourself. And what he's saying is essentially is that the call of following Jesus is a call of death. It calls me to put aside all of my desires, my wants, my needs, my things, and die to those and say, Jesus, I want what you want. But in a church church culture that fights for unity, it says, what do we want? And what do we need to do to be happy? And whatever you do to be happy is fine with me. And it's fine with you. And we can all just sort of get along. Because we don't want to be seen as that intolerant, that judgmental, that whatever person or church. And so we yet really proclaim that deep core essential truth of the gospel. And at the core of that message is a call to death. And it took me a long time in my life to really realize this, right? It took me a long time to realize that at the core of the gospel message is a message of division. And that's not a terrible thing. Because the gospel that tears apart, the gospel that separates, is also the gospel that rebuilds, the gospel that restores, and the gospel that gives life. So at its core, it's a a gospel of division because it separates us from ourselves and our own desires and our own wants and our way of life and says, Jesus, here. And in the meantime, when we do that, when we die to ourselves, God rebuilds and restores our heart. He gives us purpose and meaning, and he saves. But most of us don't want to go from there to here. And so we fight God with this tension. That God calls me to lay down my life and I fight him for control. God calls me to surrender my desires, but I tell him what I want. And as long as as my desires are in line with where God is leading me, then I am a wonderful follower of Christ. But the moment those things begin to separate are the moment that my life begins to fall apart. Because at the core of the gospel message is a message of division and death. That we will never fully be able to surrender our lives to Christ until we die to ourselves. And it's not a message that most people want to hear. Most people want to hear that if I just follow Jesus, things will work out. The reality is that we've got to die to ourselves and our own way of thinking and our own way of life. So the first of those lesser truths that we see is in the city there, right? There was division because the gospel brings about division because it separates the desire for me and myself from what God calls us to lay down. It's not a terrible thing. The second thing that we see is that the gospel causes rejection. So once the city was divided, right, verse 5, there was a plot afoot, which I never really understood the word afoot, but there's a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat and stone them. So once division happened, rejection set in. So once we begin to proclaim a message that is not completely tolerant of all things, once we begin to proclaim a message that doesn't just say, hey, whatever works for you is fine. Once we begin to proclaim a message that says, God wants you to surrender your life to him for the promise of not only eternal life in heaven, but real abundant life today, rejection sets in. And rejection is hard because rejection is personal. Anybody that's ever been Uh, broken up with or devastated in a relationship knows the hurt because rejection is personal. It's not like someone is just saying, look, I don't want to be with you anymore. They're saying, I don't want to be with you anymore. And that kind of rejection breaks our heart. 
And if you've ever applied this to your spiritual life, like when you spend time with someone and you love them and you care for them and you tell them how much God loves them and they call you a, you know, a, a whatever they, words they want to throw at you. They want to call you a Bible beater or a fundamentalist or whatever that word is, intolerant. Then you know the kind of rejection that is associated with the gospel. The gospel brings about rejection. The truth is, is that this isn't the only place that we see it. Like we just looked at, there are places all through Scripture where rejection happens, right? So I'll show you a few others real quickly. Luke 21, right? This is what uh, we see Jesus saying himself. You will be betrayed even by your parents, by your brothers, by your relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. John 15, 18 says this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And Mark 13, 13 says, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The reality is, is that rejection is a part of the gospel. I can tell you this, and I'll say it in all honesty. I have been called and labeled some of the most hurtful things you could possibly imagine. People have said them to my face. They have said them behind my back. I've been called a, a bigot misogynist, I've been called a fundamentalist, I've been called a hater, I've been called all kinds of things by people that don't even know me, that have never spoken to me, that don't know my heart and my family, all because of what I've given my life to. Some of those things are warranted because I'm a broken, sinful, disastrous person, but some of them are completely unwarranted, but are tied to the fact that I preach at times a gospel that is offensive and that is divisive, and that brings about rejection. And for most of us in our culture, that rejection is emotional, right? It's it's verbal. But that's not really the case for two-thirds of the world. For two-thirds of the world, the rejection that comes with the gospel is actually very real, and it's physical. The State Department says that there are 60 countries where if you are an open professing Christian, you face daily persecution for your belief in Christ. 233 people die every month around the world because they publicly claim to be a follower of Jesus. Over 215 businesses are destroyed or burned around the world because their owners are Christians every month. Every month, 700 acts of violence are reported. That's not even the ones that aren't reported. That happen directly to people that proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. And those things include abductions, beatings, rapes. Every month, 700 of them around the world. And for the 13th year in a row, North Korea tops the list. That in North Korea, there are between 50 and 70,000 believers that are imprisoned in labor camps, most of which will be put to death. You won't see it. You won't read about it. It's not on the news. It's not popular because for most of the world, it doesn't matter. We live in a place and we celebrate on a weekend where we have the ability to come here and gather in this place as free as we want to. For two-thirds of the world, it's not an option because rejection associated with the gospel is true. So why? Why is the rejection there? Is it a way of life? Is it a lifestyle? It's actually much simpler than that. And it came out of those verses I just read. Did you catch it? Why do people reject gospel because at the core they reject Christ it's him and it's that simple all men will hate you because of me 
but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The truth is, it's not at the core of what the message is. It's not the, the concept as much as it is the person. So years ago, when The Passion of Christ came out, the movie, you know, whenever that was, however, 10, whatever you many years ago that was, uh, I was going in to eat lunch with a group of guys, and, and uh, we went to the place that we normally go to when I was living in Austin, and the guy at the counter said, hey, Jareb, because he knew that I was working at a church, he says, why is all the uproar, and I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a ton of uproar, right, about the movie. Why all the uproar? You know, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, it's basically the same story that's in the Bible, right? I mean, it's, and so we sort of visited about it a little bit, and I sat down, and I realized, I said, you know, what I, what I wanted to say or what I realized I should have said is that the uproar was not about the movie, but it's because the movie was about Jesus in any category, because Jesus is the person that was rejected first, and he told us that when we follow him, we will be rejected. When we categorically and correctly proclaim the gospel message, we can expect to face division, and we can expect to face rejection. Now, the, the church exists as an agent of reconciliation and an agent of, of peace, absolutely. But we should expect the fact that when we preach and proclaim a true gospel, division and rejection will come, not because the church or you has done anything, but because Jesus said this would happen. The division happens when you look at someone and you say, God's desire for you is not pleasure for yourself, but to die to your desires and say yes to him. The world doesn't want to hear that. The world wants to live in a place, even our church culture, that wants to please me first. We've talked about this a zillion times. We live in a church culture that consumerism has just absolutely annihilated our, our kind of passion or call to die to ourselves. We walk into places and we say, what do you have to offer me? I want this for my kids. I want this for myself. I want to feel this. I want that. You don't have that, this, worship, whatever, I'll go somewhere else. Because at the end of the day, even my church experience is about myself. And so when you proclaim a gospel, it says, you know what, actually it's not about you. It's about dying to all those things and saying, not God, what does this place have to offer me? What are you going to give me here? Do I like the way the message is or the music is or do I like the things they have to offer? Instead of saying all those things, a true gospel walks in and says, God, how do you want to use me? Today as I draw breath, because I want you, period. Even if that means everything that I am afraid of and everything that I want to run from. Because, God, I want to die to my own desires for comfort and stability and whatever. And I want you. When you begin to teach and proclaim that message, when you begin to live that way as a church, you are swimming upstream against a culture. That says unity, tolerance. Now you've heard me enough over the years to realize that I'm not preaching intolerance. We're called to love the world with crazy abandon and passion. But be unwavering in the truths that we proclaim. And there are going to be people that look at you and look at me or whatever and say, I hate you. But as Jesus said, they didn't hate you, they hated me first. So what do we do? Like, lesser talked about truths. Like, what do we do with that? Well, there's a couple of responses here that I find really interesting. And they're really kind of simple and kind of buried in there. And, and the first really happens after this, um, this first poisoning begins to happen. So Paul and Barnabas proclaim the message, and some of the Jews believed, some of the Gentiles believed, and some of them didn't. And they poisoned the minds, right? 
So it says they, they poisoned the minds against the brothers. Verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord. So the first two things of the three that I, and there's a billion I could lift out, but the three that I want to lift out are, are, are these. In the face of that division and rejection, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time. So they saw the poisoning. They saw the division. They felt the rejection. And what did they do? They spent more time there. Now, most of us, when the uncomfortable happens, we try and correct it really quickly. So we try and apologize for it or whatever it is, or we just try and leave the situation. We don't like to live in those difficult circumstances. We don't like to live there. What Paul and Barnabas did was they just spent more time with people. So in the middle of division, in the middle of, re- in the middle of rejection, instead of like, you know, throwing a grenade out there and then just cruising, they just spent time with everybody. And I find this really remarkable because it's the opposite of what I want to do. When things get really hard and when people are really awful to me, and you should see some of the letters that I've gotten and have received in my time just doing church work, hurtful, hateful stuff, every part of me wants to literally run for the hills and just be done. And say, so it's it. Like, I didn't sign up for this. But Paul and Barnabas, they just stay longer which has been a remarkable thing for me to see. Because in the middle of difficulty and division and struggle, in the middle of whether that comes from people or the enemy or whatever it is, they just stayed longer in the lives of people, which is the one place that most of us don't want to be. So when rejection and division and those things happen in your life, and when you proclaim the true gospel, when you live it, it will happen. And if it's not happening to you, you should probably ask yourself why. They stayed longer. The second thing that we see in that same sentence there is that they boldly proclaimed the gospel. They kept talking. They kept talking about the Lord. Part of this idea of responding to hurt and division and struggle is to proclaim the truth of who God is. And reconciliation, like we talked about last week, restored relationships and God's desire for us to die to ourselves so that he can rescue and rebuild and restore our lives. Not just personally, but together. Through all kinds of lines, socioeconomic lines, racial lines, God is the restorer of all things. But we have to die to ourselves first. And so they unwaveringly kept proclaiming those truths over and over again, saying, don't you see that God wants your heart? He wants your life. He wants you to die to yourself, even in the middle of division and difficulty and rejection. They stayed longer, and they spoke boldly. We, as a Christian culture, are in a really difficult time, right? We're in a really difficult time. Because the stronger we stand on biblical truth, the more we're seen as intolerant, and I preached on this in week eight a long time ago, so I won't go on to it. The more we're seen as intolerant and anti-whatever, the truth is, is that it's so much easier just to not speak truth. It's so much easier just to recoil and say, you know what, my life in Christ is private. It's for me. And if you want to come and ask me about it, I'll be happy to tell you about it, but I'm not living it out here. 
because I don't want to be seen as those things. I don't want to be labeled as those things. I don't want to be that fundamentalist, that Bible beater, that person, that judgmental hypocrite, whatever it is that I grew up with, that I hate. I don't want to be that person. But if you open up the pages of Scripture, there is a call to be bold and stand firm at almost every turn. Because culture and the world will want to come at you and knock you out. And so all through scripture, we see the apostles and even Jesus himself saying, stand firm, be bold, proclaim. Put your feet in the ground. Live for truth, even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of division and rejection. So we see the idea of being involved in a relationship longer and standing firm. It doesn't mean being angry. It doesn't mean protesting and carrying signs around. What it means is staying in the lives of people and being unwavering in the truth that you proclaim. Listen, I know that you don't love this idea, but God wants you so desperately that he's willing to give his son Jesus that if you die to yourself, he will give you a real, abundant, true life. But you've got to be willing to lay down your desires your wants and your things. And I know that's not popular, but this is the message I keep unwaveringly sharing. This is what we are called to do together. And then finally, the last thing that, that I want to say is that, I know in terms of those responses, is that we've got to truly understand Mark 13, 13, and tie our identity to Jesus and not to others. Mark 13, 13, all men will hate you because of me. It's Jesus' words. When we tie our identity to Christ, right, there's hope there. When we tie our identity to people, there's fear there. Most of us have tied our identity to people and what they say and what they think. And so we alter our image, the way that we look, the way that we dress, the things that we do, the, even the things that we say and the way that we live to adapt to the world around us. Because we want to be accepted by them. So culture tells us that we have to drive certain cars, live in certain houses, wear certain clothes, look a certain way. Most of us are so dissatisfied with our lives that we look in the mirror, we're disgusted at what we see. We look at our houses and our cars or our lives or whatever and we're disappointed. Because we've measured ourselves up against a culture to find our identity there. But if we find our identity in Christ alone, Jesus, you are my everything. Every single thing in my life, I just want you. And we truly understand Mark 13, 13, which says, look, it's not a front against me. But Lord, they hated you first. And I don't wear that as a proud banner because I want people to hate me, but I wear it as a banner that says, my identity is in you. And I want to love people the way that you love them. But I want to be unwavering in my proclamation that God desires us to die to ourselves. These are the lesser talked about truths of the gospel message. But they're deeply real. And they should be guiding us as a church. Not in that arrogant backbone that says this and this and this and you're not, not, not. But in that driving part of us that says this gospel message is real and it's a call to die. And I have to wake up every single day and draw that breath in. Because the, de the desire to die to myself is not a one time forever. It is in every moment of every day saying yes to Jesus. When we begin to live that out, it causes rejection and hurt and division in the world. But the God that calls us to die is the God that calls us to life. And he rebuilds and he restores and he redeems.
May we be unwavering in our proclamation of that gospel. Let's pray together.